In reading this passage today, we start uh, an exciting journey into Luke. We're only going to go into Luke 3 and then we're going to go elsewhere. But Luke 3 will take us all the way up to Christmas and it is an exciting journey and uh, quite a profound journey. And we've picked this, to it's designed to help us um, be thinking about the way God prepared for Jesus to come when he came and the initial of, uh, effects of his being part of our world. So today, it's a very long passage, Matthew 1, uh, Luke 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. This is a, a, a short but really significant beginning to Luke's Gospel. And uh, although I'm filling in while I find my right place, <laughs> it's absolutely true that this, uh, on, the, on the whole of the Gospel rests on the foundation of these four verses. And I hope you'll see that uh, as we go through today. So let's pray and ask that God will bring his word alive for us. Father, we just thank you for your word. It's living, it's active, it gets right into people's hearts, people's lives, people's thinking. And so we pray, would you do that with us today? These familiar words, may there be a freshness, a newness, uh, a fresh understanding of how they fit into this gospel and into your word as a whole. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to ask you... Why are you a Christian? I know some of you may not have come to that point just yet. But for those who have, why are you a Christian? I don't know if you remember, a few years ago, uh, there was a, a bus driven around London. And on the side of the bus, they put a slogan. It was actually a group of uh, humanists put a slogan on the side which said, There's probably no God. So now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Which is a silly slogan, really, wasn't it? I mean, probably no God. I should have said, there is no God. <laughs> they said, there's probably no God. But does that mean that you and I, in, in reality, are just a group of wusses for trusting God? Are we running away from reality by being a Christian? Is, is following the Christian faith really all about wish fulfilment? Looking at what could be and moving towards that, even though it's not actually right. I know a lot of non-Christians, if they won't um, level these charges at, at us face to face, nevertheless, they do suspect this is true. One of our recent archbishops was described as a religious dinosaur who refused to, to see that society has moved on. There's all sorts of thinking that crowds the sort of thing we're doing here in opening God's word up, isn't there? All sorts of alternative ways of thinking. For instance, this is Richard Dawkins. Some of you will know him. He's one of the more vocal new atheists. 
He believes that Christians hold their faith so tenuously that when he wrote one of his anti-Christian books, he confidently claimed on the cover, if this book works as I intend, religious leaders who open it will be atheists when they put it down. It's a pretty confident comment, isn't it? But does his arrogance trouble you? Have you got something? Is there some truth there? On what basis do you believe what you believe? In the series we're starting today, Luke is really helpful to you and me because he supplies to us information that none of the other Gospels supplies to us. That is about um, how God prepared the world for com the coming of Jesus. And although, obviously, he, he wrote back in his day and he, he doesn't write in terms of today's modern debate, nevertheless, he does speak powerfully to the same issue that, that we're looking at today and which is so current in our community at the moment. He helps us clarify what's really important amongst all the jumble of things that, that we hear and are told. He stands diametrically opposed to Dawkins, for instance, and, and, and to all his fellow atheists. And his aim is to write, because he tells us here, to write reliable words about miraculous events. That's, so that's the sermon title, Reliable Words About Miraculous Events, because we know once these four verses are over, then bang, we're faced with a, a whole myriad of progressive, incredible events that happen, and we need to read those events in the light of these four verses. His purpose, he says, is so, and he's writing to Theophilus, but see, you're another Theophilus and so am I. He's writing to all of us and he's saying, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Okay, so I've got some slides and if I do it right, we'll, we'll get them sorted. Okay, I've already gone past this one, but that's okay. Look, look, here's, here's Luke. Who was he? He was a Gentile. He was from Antioch, well-educated. He was a doctor. Um, he was a companion of Paul. Uh, he wrote Acts as a second volume. Um, I think we probably all, all know all of that, but that's good just to pull it all together. We might say, um, why did Paul write? Why did Paul write? And who did he write to? Well, he, he wrote to Theophilus. Uh, sometime before 70 AD, perhaps as early as 61 AD, so it's fairly early in terms of those things. We'll see that in a little chart in a minute. And here's why he wrote, to present Theophilus and the interests of the Gentile world with a full, accurate and ordered account of the story of Jesus. Okay, that's why he wrote. Now, um, what was his product? What does he have that he can offer to us? His gospel. And these four verses might be sort of a short, simple statement of fact, which they're certainly designed to be, but they do explain why Luke went to such considerable trouble putting them together, both these verses and the Gospel. But if you raise that to another level, then you have to say that these verses are an introduction not just to the Gospel, but to Luke Acts itself. We won't deal with that in any great detail because we saw that when we did Acts together. They're like a road map and they tell us where we're headed. That's their purpose. And the reason they stand so solidly there at the beginning of the gospel is because they constitute Luke's guarantee that the rest of what he writes is historical, 
reliable and purposeful. Historical, reliable and purposeful because he wants us to know that the central figure he points us to, the Lord Jesus Christ, is historical, reliable and purposeful. He's going to tell us some, of some fantastic incidences. And you have to know that you're dealing with historical facts and you're dealing with real truth, not myths or stories, as often is claimed about these accounts by those who've not usually looked at them with any great care. So, his was one of many contemporary Gospels. Apparently there were other um, writings uh, floating around at the time, but we only really have the four. We have snippets of all, many, many others, but with four complete Gospels is all we have. Um, the first generation of Christians uh, didn't need Gospels so much. I mean, they knew Jesus personally. As Peter says, they heard him speak, they ate with him, they saw him perform miracles. Uh, many were witnesses then to his death and resurrection. One man has said they had no need for books to tell them about him for their memories, their minds and their hearts were full of him. And that's true, wasn't it? Very true. He didn't need to have it written down because he was right there in the middle of it all. But for the second generation, it was different. Luke's generation was different. Many of them hadn't been there and had the chance to walk with Jesus. There were fewer eyewitnesses around, although they were certainly still around. And so they began to rely on what they had in recorded forms. Paul, for instance, when he wrote to uh, the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For what I received, so he'd received that information, I then passed on to you as of first importance. And that's how it worked. Uh, important letters, um, sayings, etc., that had been written down were passed on. I want to just to make a point at this, at this point, though. At this point, often people will say, yeah, and that's where the whole thing falls down. What they might mean is, so you're saying basically people just passed it on from one to the other. We say, yes, that's, that's true. But unlike you or me, well, let's just say me, because you may not be like this, that whole in, uh, culture and community and generation uh, were trained magnificently in memory. <laughs> they were taught from the very time they were little up to the time they, they died um, that remembering what they heard was of incredible significance. And so we had whole communities that could recite long pieces of the Old Testament. Why? Because that was what they were used to. They didn't have computers, didn't have iPads or iPhones or whatever it might be. They had memories and they were very good at it so when we talk about it being passed on from one to the other you say yes that's how it, that's how it worked but it was passed on with great accuracy uh, at each step so people talk about you know Chinese whispers and you start with one sentence and then you sort of you, you do it through half a dozen people and it ends up with some incredibly different statement altogether didn't work like that people were very very careful to remember with accuracy because they felt a responsibility to the next generation and to their families. So please keep that in mind, that's very, very important. Unfortunately, um, 
Luke tells us that several writers did put the pieces together, but we've lost those accounts. Um, we do have Mark, Luke, John, um, and Matthew. And we know Matthew and John, they were eyewitnesses. So in a sense, they were double witnesses. They were both um, disciples and um, they were also apostles. So they were double witnesses. Luke and Mark weren't. So they went and resourced for their gospel, um, but they resourced with incredible care. We know Mark had some personal links with, with Jesus. He was probably the young fellow who ran away naked on the night uh, in the garden, remember, just before Jesus died? It was probably him. Uh, no, it can't be absolutely definite, but it looks, probably was him. Um, Luke probably had Mark's gospel on his desk and other writings on his desk. And, of course, he spent how many years with Paul? Um, sitting with Paul as Paul brought people to know Jesus, as he watched him do it. And, and all of that was recorded up here and then on paper so that Luke's gospel is very broad in what it records uh, from all these eyewitnesses. Now, I probably jumped ahead too much, but it's all right. His sources... The content of Luke's gospel is described in verse 1 as an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. In other words, it's a historical account. It's an historical account. It's a biography of man's life and ministry, Jesus' story. It's his story. It's a confirmation that what God promised he was going to do, that he did in Jesus as his son and unique saviour of the world. And you remember on the day of Pentecost, um, we have there that very first sermon preached by an eyewitness to a group of eyewitnesses. It, it, remember how it went? It went like this. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by mailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. The thing that Luke realised, and all that generation realised, was this wasn't just history. This wasn't just history. This was loaded history. On the day of Pentecost when Peter preached that sermon, people just didn't listen and say, that's really interesting, and then go and have their jam and, uh, scones with jam and cream. 3,000 people were so struck to the heart by the message, that historical message they heard, that they confessed faith in Jesus Christ and became members of his community. 3,000. And as you trace, of course, through Luke, you find that happens again and again and again so as, as Jesus builds his church. Acts 2 says they were cut to the heart and brought to forgiveness because the word about Jesus is a living word. It's a living truth breathed out by God and therefore very dangerous to listen to. It's not, it's not just your testimony, although it is, 
And it's not just mine, although it is. It's God's testimony, and he never fails to accomplish his plans. In the right hands, God's word is a very dangerous tool. So take that dangerous tool out and talk to people and watch the danger occur. Remember what Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. What great confidence. He could see the danger involved in the gospel and he just uh, praised God for it. So Luke knew firsthand what what changes could come to a person's life. He saw the preaching of Paul and and others as he travelled with them. Um, He wanted Theophilus, this man that he's writing to, and the whole Greek world, you, me, everybody, he wanted them to know the truth as well. So for him, it was absolutely essential that he be recognised as a person of the highest integrity, as a historian of the highest integrity, because he wanted people to know and to believe and to understand that the account of Jesus would be recognised the same way, an account with the utmost integrity and believability and truth. So everything in his biography was stamped with three things. It was stamped with thoroughness, He painstakingly investigated the events right back to the birth of Jesus. It was stamped with accuracy. So he checked and rechecked the genuineness of all the different things that he resourced from different people. And it was um, tainted with order. Everything that he did, he put into an orderly account, not necessarily um, time-wise, but in such a way that we could see how it fitted in to God's master plan. Now, um, here we have a little uh, slide that um, looks a bit innocuous but is actually very telling. When you compare the Bible as an ancient document to the other documents that are readily accepted within our community, taught within our schools, uh, and assumed by uh, the educational um, professors, etc., you realise that the integrity of the scriptures is way, way, way ahead of these other ancient documents. How do you measure it? Well, one measure is how many um, different accounts of these ancient books do we have to compare to see if they all say the same thing? And if you look at that um, table, Caesar's Gallic Wars... um, You may not be familiar with all of these, but just take that as an example. There are 10 copies to compare. Trial down through there to Homer's Iliad, there's 643. When you get to the New Testament, see how many manuscripts there are to compare to see if it's gone wrong somewhere. There's no comparison, is there? Then in the next next, um, column, can you see how close to the time these events happened was the account written down. Caesar's Gallic Wars was not, sorry, they have a a manuscript that was not written down for 900 years after the events. If you chase that all the way down, see it gets more and more and more until you get to the New Testament manuscripts, and there are manuscripts written down 40 years after the events. What I'm saying to you is this, this is common knowledge. There is no genuine historian in the the world 
um, who would doubt, number one, that Jesus existed, uh, or would doubt the, the strength of argument for the ancient manuscripts of the scriptures. Take heart, be encouraged. This is, um, this is uh, demonstrable and testable, and it comes out so incredibly well. Well, um, quite a few of our generation will insist that there is no absolute truth. Everything's relative. Um, what I believe is true for me, what you believe is true for you. Now, Luke rejects that attitude completely. And we ought to do the same. What he says is, God has spoken, God has acted, and now God is looking to every single person to respond to what he's done and what he said. So that whether you or I believe what God has said and done, they nevertheless remain the truth. Our lack of belief doesn't change the truth. God tests us on the basis of his truth, not the other way around. So many in the community want to do it the other way around. I will test God on the basis of my truth. But that's not the way it works. And Luke knows that. Um, as this little introduction moves into the body of the gospel from next week, um, Luke's point here is going to be confirmed again and again as we watch these historical events unfold and we see the spiritual impact they have on the people present. Well, let's catch up with the slides. Why does he go to so much trouble to confirm the reliability and truth of what he records? Well, for the modern reader, in recording for Theophilus the birth of Jesus and the events leading up to it, what he's doing is he's jumping straight into that fundamental area of controversy about spiritual and physical reality and the nature of our world. We're talking miracles and things like that, not normal things that happen. As you start reading, there's a, there's a sort of a, an immediate build-up of anticipation and excitement. Our problem, of course, there is we're so familiar with the text. We're so familiar. How many times have you read the Christmas story and leading up to everything? We're familiar with the text. But just imagine you're reading it for the very first time. You would see a build-up of excitement um, about these um, events. There's an inescapable and unapologetic conclusion that not only does God exist, but here we see him breaking into our world through a series of miraculous events. It's his world. He can break into it whenever he wants to, and that's what he's doing here. And then hovering over the following three chapters, we, we meet the angel Gabriel, a supernatural messenger sent by God. So who does he appear to? Zechariah, Mary, um, the shepherds, and every time he has to say to them, calm down, don't be afraid. Why? Because they understand who he is and who he represents. That here is um, one of God's messengers come to talk face to face with me. Can you imagine being in that, in that situation? They're suddenly made aware of the glory, the majesty, the power of God, and they're terrified. So he reassures them. And although the, the event he comes to announce is huge and has unbelievable consequences, this is a word from God himself. 
and it's a word of joy and favour for those who receive it for what it is. And then, as you read into the book, the miracles continue. Zechariah is struck dumb. Baron Elizabeth becomes pregnant with John the Baptist. John's ministry starts a spiritual revival. The young girl Mary um, becomes pregnant supernaturally by God's spirit and then bears God's own son. And then this son of God grown up continues to teach, continues to forgive, to heal, to raise people from the dead, and then he dies and then he's raised again from the dead. Then he resumes his place at God's side and begins to build a new community. Strike me. Even with a very fertile imagination, you couldn't dream up these events, could you? And we're asked to believe that they are true. No apology. We are told this is the truth of what God is doing. We're watching one world break into another world. And God is shown to be in charge that he can break into the natural world whenever he chooses to do so. It's meant to say, hey, God's hand is over all of this. He's pointing to Jesus as his own man. And if we were just to think to one side for a second, it may well be there's every chance that you and I would see the supernatural world breaking into the natural world in the most amazing way if Jesus chose to come while we're still alive. Can you imagine what it would be like? We will be part of those events, but can you imagine what it would be like for that to happen while we are here? So what do we say? We began by asking whether we as Christians are actually running away from reality or maybe just blindly accepting our parents' faith. Luke has put us in a really strong position to answer those sorts of questions. Three things. The Christian faith is actually a response to objective historical truth. It's true whether we see it or not or okay it or not. It's objective historical truth. You don't have to remove your brains to believe. It's based on a reasoned assessment of good and reliable, testable evidence and it's a response to Jesus. That trust then leads to a personal, internal, subjective experience of Jesus. Our faith is confirmed as Jesus keeps his promises, assures us of his love and answers our prayers and builds our friendship. In Christian faith, there is only, it is only genuine, it is only deep, and it's only solid if you are putting your faith in the right person. Because in the end, it doesn't matter so much how much faith we've got as who we're putting that faith in. What Luke is saying to us, that there is no one else in all of history who is as qualified and as, as equipped as Jesus to lead us to God and to keep us close to him. If that's true, then you and I can be confident of his utter reliability, both Jesus and Luke. And that means, brothers and sisters, that this Christmas time we can rejoice, we can give thanks to God with all our hearts because we know that our faith in Jesus is resting on unshakable ground. That's what Luke wants to say before he launches off into his gospel and that's the truth that we consider 
today. Your faith, whether you've been a Christian a long time or a short time, rests on unshakable ground. So take heart and have confidence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the reassurances that come from your word. And we pray that you would help us to plough on, to move on with confidence and assurance, giving thanks to you and rejoicing in Jesus' name.